Grace and mercy and peace to you this morning from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Savior. The Bible is full of just amazing stories, the kind of things that make you say, what, really, did that, did that really happen? Can you give me some examples of, if you'd make a list of the top stories like that to stand out as, wow, that is amazing, how in the world would that happen? What kind of stories come to mind for you? The flood. Could God really cover the whole world with water and at the same time save Noah and his family? What an amazing story. What other ones come to mind for you? Jesus turning water into wine. All of Jesus' miracles, you'd say, really? Could Jesus have those, those jars full of water all of a sudden turn into wine? Not just wine, the best wine those people had ever tasted. Uh, for me, I'd probably add Jonah, whether it was a whale or fish. I don't know what it was that swallowed him, but that he was inside it for three days and three nights and spit out and was fine. I suppose the, 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 the biggest one of all would be that Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, actually physically rose from the dead on Easter. Uh, I've never seen someone dead come back to life, but the Bible says that he did. Now, the Bible's full of those amazing stories, not because they're common in our world, if anything, I think the word miracle is probably overused. I mean, when the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians in 1980, was it really a miracle? Not, not really. Uh, miracles, can God still work that way? Yes, but that, that's not the way he usually works in this world. It's not common. And yet in the Bible, this is the account of how God stepped into history to save us. And so they show up all the time. And the question is, what do you do with them? I... I think, and you know too, there are a lot of people where you come across these accounts that are just incredible. And there are a lot of people who would say, well, that must be some kind of legend or tall tale or fable or even call it a fairy tale that didn't really happen even though maybe there's something we could still listen to today. Uh, and yet, I think you know that our church and us as pastors, and I hope for you too, uh, we're going to look at it this way, that God does exist and therefore, there is supernatural in this world that goes beyond what we're able to sense and see. And because that God, who is very much real and present in our world, is able to step into this world, even though He does use natural things usually to accomplish His will, can God go above and beyond the laws of nature He created and do something that's just extraordinary? The answer is, yeah. And because this, this, the Bible is the Word of God written down, when He tells us He did these amazing things like the flood or turning water into wine or Jonah or His Son Jesus rising from the dead, we say, yes, that really did happen. And rather than doubting it or questioning the historicity of that account, instead, the question that we ask is, why would God do that and what's the significance for us? Because usually the main point is not about the miracle itself. It's that God is teaching us something about himself through that miracle. For example, like with Jesus, the water and the wine or other things like that, the word the Bible uses is it calls them signs. They were to point you to Jesus and show you something about him. It's not really about the wine. It's about Jesus revealing his glory as God. And so the question for us is, first of all, you marvel at what happened, but then you ask, why would God want to have this in his word that I'm hearing about it today? What's the take-home point that God wants me to take away from that? Now the reason I'm leaning in with this, and I know that's kind of a long introduction, is because 
Another story, even stories are, some people say don't use the word story because that makes it sound too much like it's just made up. Call it a historical account because that's what it is. Another story or account I'd put on that list would be the coming of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. Because there are some pretty incredible things that happen in that account. And so today, this morning, let's go back, and if you're out there, go back to page 8 and let's look at this again together. To look first at the what. What is it that's so amazing here? But then to go deeper than that to the why. Why did God choose to do a miracle here? Because he doesn't just do them willy-nilly. What was his purpose in having this account happen and then be recorded for us this morning? So, you've got it there in front of you. Let me give you a couple seconds just to skim through it. And the first question is, what is it that's so incredible about what happened in Matthew chapter 2? There's no exact number for me. It's at least three or four things that just stand out as, wow, that is incredible. Uh, somebody mentioned one. Anybody? First thing that stands out to you is? I think the star is what I heard. That was the first thing people said last night, too, the star. And people wonder, what in the world was this like? Uh, Chinese astronomers record a supernova in the year 5 or 6 BC when a star explodes and there's this huge bright light in the sky. Some people, that would have been the same time, time as this. It would have been... Sometime 654 B.C. was when Herod was still alive and Jesus would have been born. So some people say, was it a supernova like the Chinese astronomers recorded? But in other ways, that doesn't fit everything that's described here. Other people have said, was it some kind of comet? Some kind of shooting star? Uh, people have wondered if there was some kind of the planets converged together. There was a Lutheran not too long after Martin Luther. His name was Johannes, Johannes Kepler where if you know astronomy, he was one of the first people to really figure out how the planets move. And he calculated correctly that in that same time period, 5-6 BC, Jupiter and Saturn converged in the constellation Pisces. Uh, and so he thought maybe that was what these magi saw as, as the sign in the sky. But if you look through what Matthew says, none of those really seem to describe it exactly because it sounds like they saw something that was amazing in the sky and they recognized it as the star. But then it must have disappeared because it sounds like it went away. And so then they travel and they come to Jerusalem and King Herod asked them the exact time the star appeared. And if you keep reading, it must have been that they told him two years because he horribly decided to kill all the boys two years old and younger. So if they'd seen this, two years earlier, then it disappeared, but then after they talk to Herod and get sent on to Bethlehem, then it reappears, and it's not only there in the sky, it's able to lead and guide them, not just to Bethlehem, but able to show them the exact house that Jesus is in. And you say, what kind of star, what, what, what in the world was this up in the sky that God used that was able to bring them there? The star is, just stands out as amazing. No one's ever been able to explain exactly what it was. What else would be on your list of just amazing things here in Matthew chapter 2? Yeah, for me, the second one would be the, whether you call them the wise men or the magi. My dictionary, I checked it. I think, Ted, you asked me last year, is it magi or magi? 
I checked my dictionary. It says it goes either way. Um, I think Pastor Tom may have said Magi. I've heard Magi. Uh, we've got a song that calls them the We Three Kings of Orient R. Uh, but that'd be this other, just, this is amazing. Of all the people you'd expect to pop up in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, it is not at all, it's not at all them. Uh, the Magi, we have the word magic from that, or magician, or mage. They were a group of people over in Babylon and Persia where their whole life was devoted to magic and telling dreams and predicting the future and reading the stars and stuff like that. Most of which God had told his people, you shouldn't have anything to do with that. Because a lot of it was connected with even black magic and stuff spiritually that had nothing to do with the one true God. Just like as your pastor I'd say today, you shouldn't be messing around with having people read your palm or look at a crystal ball for you. Why mess around with stuff like that when that is not from, God does not say that is from, from Him. So part of what's surprising is, why in the world are they the ones who are coming to worship, to worship Jesus? Now, the Israelites had been in captivity over in Babylon, and people usually suppose that the, the message and the prophecies of the Old Testament made their way over there through God's Old Testament people in captivity. And maybe these wise men or magi or the, these kings came over because they, they had heard about that. But we don't know how many there are. People usually say three because there were three gifts. Uh, there must have been at least two, but we don't know how many. They probably weren't at all kings because that's not what the position was. Whether or not they were wise, you could say they probably had been to a lot of schooling, but whether trying to read the future makes you wise or not, people will sometimes quibble about whether we should call them the wise men. That's why our Bible just leaves it as, as the Magi. The other thing that's incredible about them is just the effort and expense they went to. So assuming that it was two years that they'd seen the star, I don't know how long they prepped for their journey, but it sounds like they've got two years committed before they even make it to Jerusalem. Then they visit Jesus, it sounds like they're there for what? A couple hours, maybe? It doesn't sound like they had a long visit with him, and then they head back home. Is that another year, two years? I mean, the fact that they would commit three, four years of their lives, that they would bring these incredibly expensive gifts to Jesus. Uh, and I suppose on top of that, the fact that they had thought that they were going to drop these off at the palace in Jerusalem. But then they get redirected to Bethlehem and they find out that the one they've been looking for is actually this young child in an average looking house with Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Not at all the royal family they've expected. And doesn't say they had second thoughts or they doubted or had to decide whether or not to give him the gifts. It says that they gave him, they gave him those gifts at huge personal expense of time, time and cost. Uh, and if that's not enough, what's amazing is these are not Jewish people come to worship the Jewish Savior. These are Gentiles who have really very little connection to the people of Israel coming and worshiping Jesus. And while they're there in Bethlehem, all the teachers of the law and all the people in Jerusalem who ought to have been the ones who figured this out, they're the ones who aren't there at all. They're the ones who are able to say, yeah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but then they don't actually come. 
So if you're ticking off amazing things in Matthew chapter 2, you've got whatever the star was, plus you've got these magi coming from far away, taking a huge amount of time and cost, people who are not Jewish at all, who are willing to come and give their gifts and worship a young boy at just his average house in Bethlehem. If I keep going, there are more amazing things I put on the list. One would be the prophecy. So they knew there must have been someone born, and they, how exactly they knew it was in Judea. Uh, people usually look at a prophecy made in Numbers by Balaam about a star coming out of Jacob. Um, but once they, they got to Jerusalem, then they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And then King Herod, who was pretty ruthless and, and cruel, he, he actually got this right. He said, let's check what the Bible says. So he gets the, the, the people who know the Bible the best together and says, where is the Christ going to be born? And they're able to quote from him the prophecy from Micah. And if you'd actually look at it and compare it with Micah, you'd find it's actually a mix between Micah and some words that God said about King David being the one who would lead and shepherd his people from 2 Samuel 5. But they're able to take those Old Testament prophecies and say, we know exactly where the Christ is going to be born, which is pretty amazing, right? That of all the places in the whole world and of all the places in Judea, God, 700 years before the birth of Christ, was able to pinpoint exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. And if I could add one more, another thing that just stands out to me in this, in this section is the word worship. Did you see that a couple times? That is a really strong word. And as I read commentators about this, some people will say, yeah, the fact is people would bow down and use that word sometimes for their kings. So this was not always something that would happen at a temple. The flip side of that is that when people bowed down and worshipped their kings, it usually was because the kings were claiming to be God. I don't know how much you know about that, but back then, usually the kings of these empires, like the emperor of Rome, claimed that he was God. Now, the pharaoh in Egypt claimed that he was God, and so when people bowed down to the king, they were also worshipping a deity. So what's amazing here in Matthew chapter 2 is the word worship is used about these magi coming and worshiping this little child, Christ Jesus. And the question is, how much were they honoring someone who was superior to them like a king? And how much did they realize that they were honoring the one true God? I think that's a question that people wrestle with here in Matthew chapter 2. You read the rest of the Bible and it's very clear that God is the only one we should worship. So just a couple chapters later, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness and the devil says, bow down and worship me, Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, using the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 2. So, you take all those together and you've got a whole bunch of wonderful, amazing things happening at the same time. A star where nobody can explain exactly how this is working. Magi coming from far away who, yeah, they're connected with all this stuff God has said not to do, but they're the ones who are there and find Jesus and at great personal expense and cost come and, and actually worship him and, and this pro prophecy is fulfilled. Did all of that come together and really happen? Answer is, yeah. 
not too long after Christmas, all this happened. It, it couldn't have been like the shepherds and magi there together. I know that's the way it is at our manger scene sometimes, but we know that Jesus was taken to Jerusalem by his parents when he was 40 days old. That's when Simeon saw him. We sing the song of Simeon. Lord, now you let your servant depart in peace after communion. So Jesus was at least 40 days old when that happened. So the Magi must have come sometime between about 40 days after Jesus' birth and up to about two years later is the window that people usually give. So sometime in that time period, all these amazing things came together and happened. Not just random or by chance, but because God stepped in and did something amazing and wonderful. So that's the what, but I want to leave you today with thinking about the why. Because I hope the main point you take away today is not some trivia about stars or about magi or anything like that, but that you leave with something about your God and your Savior. So if you think through, why would God step in with this miracle? Why would this be recorded in Matthew chapter 2 and be in front of us this morning? Is there another list you can make of of things like that. Often with the miracles, there's not a verse saying, here's exactly the point you're supposed to take away from this, uh, which makes us think about it and is it's sometimes hard to wrestle with. I think as I've worked with this over the years, as I've been taught it, even from when I was in, in Sunday school, as I've read commentators about it, there are some points that stand out as, yeah, this is coming through loud and clear about what our God is like. Here are a couple things. One would be, like a lot of the miracles of God, just to be amazed at the way that God is in control of everything in this world. It's called His providence. That God is able to make a prediction hundreds of years ahead of time and then have it come true. That God is able to create some phenomenon from the sky that's able to do amazing things like that star did. That God is able to bring everything together according to His plan. Uh, you see that here about Him. And for you, I don't know how much you're tempted to doubt and waver about our world and how it seems to be crazy and out of control. Is God still in control of our world today, doing things according to His plan and purpose? The answer is, yeah. And so today, to leave you again with the amazing providence of God. A second one, second one is to see just how amazing it is that Jesus is the one who's worthy of all worship and praise. That if you'd say, is it a waste of time for these magi to spend three or four years of their lives and to just drop off a load of gold and incense and myrrh in front of a, of a kid, was that a waste? The answer very clearly is no. And even that word worship, is it too strong to say that that people ought to bow down and worship this child, worship their Savior Jesus, again the answer is, no, that's not too strong because He is God Himself born to be our Savior. And so there's a bit of a warning built in not to be like all those people in Jerusalem who knew the prophecies, could quote it chapter and verse, and yet they never went to see Jesus. And for us too today, if you'd say, how much is it worth to give to Jesus in terms of my time or in terms of how much I would give him of what I have. To look back at these magi and say, is it worth this huge commitment of time and expense on my part as I worship my Savior? The answer is, yeah, Jesus Christ is worth that.
And the third and final one I'd emphasize is the main theme for Epiphany today. The fact that these Magi were not Jewish people from the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were Gentiles, is just proof. It's not, this is not the only place in the Bible, but it's one place very clear that Jesus came to be the Savior of everybody. If you'd say, what did these wise men get out of it? It's not like there was some immediate benefit for them, and yet when Jesus died on the cross for them, uh, it was for their sins too. The prevailing worldview back then was that each country had its own gods. So Babylon has its gods, Egypt has its gods, Rome has its gods, and if there's some god over in Judea, fine, they can have their own god too. But the message of the Bible changed all of that by revealing that there is one God who is the God of everybody. And even today, that's a good message for us to hear because it's still so easy for us to be divided from other people by race and culture. This last week, I saw a news article that put together predictions people made about the year 2020. Any of you read one of those? Going back decades, of people said, by the year 2020, we'll be flying in anti-gravity cars, stuff like that. And they went through this list and said whether or not the predictions came true. And some of them, like the anti-gravity cars, were wrong. Some were pretty close, like saying that China would become more and more economically dominant in the world. But one of them on the list that caught my eye was somebody, after World War II had predicted, by the year 2020, we'll forget about our national divisions and our country borders, and everybody will be getting along a whole lot better. And the comment of this news article is that was one they got wrong. That if anything, in 2020, it seems like our divisions into races and cultures is as strong and stronger than ever. The message of Epiphany is this. No matter what somebody's skin color is or language they speak or where they're from, Jesus Christ came to save and so no matter what your ancestry is or where you're from, the fact is that Jesus is your Savior. And whoever you bump into, uh, Lake Mills, it's not like we see a huge amount of racial diversity here in Lake Mills, but no matter who you bump into here in Lake Mills or as you go out and see things in this world, no matter what you know or don't know about the person you run into, is it true that Jesus is their Savior too? The answer is, yeah, that this is the Bible's answer the racism and everything that divides us as people is to say, but the love of Jesus Christ unites us all. He's the one who's the Savior of the whole world. And so, on this Epiphany Sunday, I'm praying that this amazing thing that God did, bringing a star and the Magi to Jesus, uh, would teach you about Himself, uh, that He is worthy of our honor and praise as the Savior of all. Amen.